Black Friday is a traditional day when retailers start making their yearly profit, but it's going to take longer for J.C. Penney to get out of that red. The company lost more than $430 million this year. CEO Ron Johnson is in a J.C. Penney store just outside San Francisco. Good morning. November 2012. Charlie Rose on CBS This Morning is interviewing J.C. Penney Chief Executive Officer Ron Johnson. We're, we're interested to see what is going on with your store. Why didn't you follow what other stores were doing and make an exception for your store, uh, your stores on Thanksgiving? Johnson had previously been the senior vice president in charge of retail operations for Apple. He was largely credited with the transformation of Apple's retail stores in the early 2000s, reimagining the traditional dull sales floor of consumer electronics into the vibrant, interactive showroom that you experience when you visit an Apple store today. You know Tiffany's, the luxury jeweler? In 2011, according to the research firm Retail Sales, Tiffany's was second in the U.S. in sales per square foot of retail space, at about $2,600 per square foot. Apple was first, with nearly double that sales figure. There was no contesting Apple's dominance in the retail space. And this made Ron Johnson a sought-after commodity. What are the benchmarks for you in turning around JCPenney? Well, to me, Charlie, the big benchmark is February 1st next year. You know, we expected one year of transition as we changed our pricing. You know, we're trying to teach people a new way to shop. So JCPenney taps Johnson to lead the company in late 2011. He had been CEO for less than a year at the time of this interview, but things were in turmoil. You see, Johnson had announced a bold new vision for JCPenney about 10 months prior, headlined by a new pricing strategy, and sales had cratered as a result of it. JCPenney's stock price had plummeted nearly 50% in just eight months, and same-store sales had fallen 25% year over year. And it's going to take a year to teach people really how to uh, respond to the new pricing, but we deliver amazing value. I think we're one of the best-kept secrets, but we expect to return to growth next year. Ron Johnson would be fired less than five months after this interview. His tenure became infamous, marred by one of the worst sales experiments, perhaps the worst, in the history of retail. In 2007, JCPenney's stock was trading at $85. The month that Johnson left the company, it was trading at $14. Today, it's trading at about 34 cents. Now, you may be familiar with the story of Ron Johnson and JCPenney, but I want to approach it from a different angle, with another layer, because Everything, his strategy, the sales experiment, the store's ultimate demise, I think it all deserves a second look. You see, there's something missing in the story of Ron Johnson and JCPenney. And I think there's an unexpected lesson we can learn from it, from, frankly, a very unexpected place. I'm David Giardino, and today on my podcast, I want to talk about JCPenney, about cognitive biases, and... World Wrestling Entertainment.
Before we can understand the story of Ron Johnson, we need to talk briefly about traditional retail marketing strategy. The JCPenney Sega Saturday One Day Only Sale of the Year. Doors open at 7 a.m. Save 20 to 60 percent store-wide. Plus, our biggest doorbuster deal 7 a.m. till noon. All gifts, one place, your magic. JCPenney. That was an old JCPenney commercial from around the turn of the millennium. Honestly, it could have been made by nearly any department or big box store from virtually any decade because the marketing message has been more or less the same in this space for a very long time. Advertisers use this fabricated sense of urgency to drive consumer demand to their stores. In that 15 second commercial alone, consider all the ways they reiterated this necessity to act fast. They called it a one day sale, the biggest of the year. The stores were opening earlier, and there was a special window between 7 a.m. and 12 noon, a sale within a sale, that consumers could take advantage of. Marketers create this false urgency because it capitalizes on our fear of missing out. Because when we humans are given a deadline, we tend to act on it, more so than if there was no deadline. This is interesting, but it's not what I want to focus on. I want to focus on the cognitive bias that marketers and retail strategists prey on most. And it's the most important bias to understand before heading into Ron Johnson's pricing experiment. It's a concept known as anchoring. In 1974, psychologists Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman advanced a theory that we often weight the first piece of information we receive too heavily when making decisions. Said differently, that that first piece of information, it anchors our judgment around it. Kahneman and Tversky set up an experiment in which participants would spin a roulette wheel. Now, unbeknownst to the subjects, the wheel was predetermined to stop on either 65 or 10. After that, participants were asked to estimate the percentage of United Nations that were African nations. Participants who saw the wheel stop on 65 guessed, on average, 45%. But participants who saw it stop on 10 guessed, on average, 25%. The roulette wheel had absolutely nothing to do with the question, but once participants saw a number, their next response was anchored to it. The subjects that saw the roulette wheel stop on 65, their estimate was nearly double what the other group was. Think about you, the consumer, in a purchasing environment. Let's say you were in the market to buy a new home in a neighborhood you didn't know very well. You probably have little expectation of what a fair price would be. You come across one house you like, and let's say it's listed for $400,000. A few blocks away, you spot another house, and it's $360,000. That second house initially feels like a good deal, but it's only because you were anchored to the first house's selling price that you saw. Retailers use this technique all the time when seeking to communicate a sale to consumers. That pair of jeans that was originally priced at $120, but is now marked down to $80, we feel like we're getting a great deal, even though it's likely that that $120 price was never what the retailer intended to sell that pair of jeans at. They wanted $80 for it, so they anchored you to a far higher price point and then marked it way down. You feel better, and they get the sale. But it's all an illusion. 
1998, researchers Brian Wansick, Robert Kent, and Stephen Hoach conducted a study in three supermarkets in Iowa. They used anchoring to influence consumer perception for Campbell's soup. The soup cans were selling at 89 cents a can, so the researchers marked them down to 79 cents a can, a very modest discount. But they varied a key piece of information next to the sale signs. In one version of the experiment, they left it alone. But in another, they added a disclaimer, limit four cans per customer. And in another version, they modified that disclaimer to limit 12 cans per customer. Customers who didn't see a disclaimer bought, on average, about three cans of soup. But the people who saw the disclaimer limit four cans per customer? More than 60% of them bought exactly four cans. And the customers who saw the disclaimer limit 12 cans per customer? They purchased, on average, seven cans of soup. That's the power of anchoring. Okay, so armed with that background, back to Ron Johnson. He's fresh off the praise and recognition from his time at Apple, and he becomes CEO of JCPenney at the end of 2011. Now, like a lot of retailers, like a lot of companies, JCPenney was hit hard by the 2008 recession. In 2007, the retailer generated about $2 billion in operating income. By the time Johnson takes control in 2011, annual operating income was less than half of that figure. But Johnson has a vision to turn things around. A very bold one. In his keynote presentation to investors in January of 2012, he notes a study that he had his team run. They found that JCPenney ran 590 promotions in 2011, and consumers ignored 99% of them. That led Johnson to the dramatic reveal, his big pricing experiment, one that he hoped would redefine retail. And it was this. No more sales. No more promotions. Effectively, no more taking advantage of this anchoring bias we all have. He said, look, this whole thing that we retailers do, jacking up prices only to mark them down, it's all a gimmick. It's a tactic we use to artificially drive demand. And you consumers, you don't want that. You don't need that. You just want fair prices every day. So we're going to give them to you. No more one-day-only doorbuster sales. So there you have it, consumers. These Black Friday sales, these deep discounts, it's all an illusion, a game. And you shouldn't have to play it. You now get our best prices always. And to memorialize it, JCPenney unveils a minimalistic new logo, a blue square inside of a red square, to emphasize their new tagline, fair and square. Now, you know where this story goes. Unfortunately, there's a downside. With no big sales, there's no big excitement. As a result, Penny's sales dropped 15% the first quarter when sales were up at most other department stores. I don't think it's good at all because <laughs> the shoppers that they have like the sales. It goes really badly. Remember that interview I played for you at the beginning of this podcast? That was about 10 months after this new pricing strategy was announced, and things had gotten so bad so quickly, JCPenney had already reversed course somewhat and reintroduced the word sales back into their marketing. But by that point, it, 
it really didn't matter. In the final quarter of 2012, JCPenney's same-store sales fell by 32% year-over-year. And sales at their competitors like Macy's? They were surging, close to 40% higher year-over-year. Consumers had abandoned JCPenney, and Ron Johnson gets relieved of his duties in the spring of 2013. The company hasn't finished a year in the black since. Now, much has been written about JCPenney's failed pricing experiment. And most theories are predicated around this idea that consumers rejected it because they didn't understand it. But that theory has never sat well with me. Sure, sometimes marketing messages are too complicated or convoluted, but in my experience, the answer is rarely the consumer wasn't smart enough. That's a cop-out. And honestly, Johnson's marketing message, it was simple. I think there's more to it than that. And I want to try on another theory for size. Okay, in 2012, at that fateful keynote presentation, here's another way of looking at it. Johnson was basically telling his investors this. We're going to break the fourth wall. Now, I'm borrowing an expression from the entertainment industry. Think of watching a movie or a play. There's this imaginary fourth wall that separates us, the audience, from the performers. We can see through this wall, but by and large, the actors and actresses act as if they can't see us. That's the illusion of theater, of television, of film. They don't talk to us. They don't just give away that it's all make-believe. And with this new pricing strategy, Johnson is basically saying, look, I want to break the fourth wall. Consumers, they're smart. They may not be aware of the nuances of anchoring, but if we just explain to them what we've been doing, admit it was all make-believe, they'll trust us more. They'll respect our transparency. They'll shop at JCPenney because they'll be more confident that they're always getting the best deal. It's a huge risk to break the fourth wall in the arts. You're breaking the spell you've cast on the audience. You're drawing attention to the fakeness of it all. That's why you don't see it done much. But Johnson says, let's do it. Let's come clean. Let's break the fourth wall. And yeah, the experiment fails, but why did it fail? More on that in a moment, because I started thinking, well, there's another big example, a fascinating story actually, where a major conglomerate broke the fourth wall. World Wrestling Entertainment, the WWE. We all know it's scripted. Chairman and CEO Vince McMahon, he dubs it, quote, sports entertainment, end quote. A combination of competition, athleticism, and theater. And in wrestling, there's this term. It's called kayfabe. And it basically means this. The first rule of wrestling is that you never talk about it being fake. The performers, the promotions, the rivalries, you never break that illusion, that fourth wall. And for decades, wrestling had honored this golden rule. But in 1997, there was a really famous incident where things went sideways on live television in front of millions of people. Okay, the background. 
Bret Hart, one of the WWE superstars, he had won the World Heavyweight title belt that summer. Now, this is the highest honor in WWE. It's the championship belt in boxing, the Super Bowl trophy in football. He was at the top of the promotional ticket, the face of world wrestling entertainment. But there was a problem. Bret Hart was leaving the WWE to join the WCW, a professional wrestling promotion founded by Ted Turner. Now, Hart was a big deal to Vince McMahon and the WWE. He had been with them for more than a decade. He was a superstar. But he signs a contract with Ted Turner's WCW, and he's set to leave the WWE in December. So he has to give up the title belt in the next few months. He can't take it with him to the WCW. This is WWE's most prized possession, the highest honor. And remember kayfabe, it needs to be done in a way that doesn't break the illusion. They have to find a way for him to give it up within the storied world of the WWE. Now, there's a big wrestling pay-per-view coming up. It's in Montreal, Canada, and it pitted the number two wrestler in WWE, Shawn Michaels, against Bret Hart in a match for the championship belt. And Chairman Vince McMahon says, okay, this is perfect. Why don't you lose the belt to Michaels? And boom, that's it. Tie a bow on it. Enjoy the WCW. But there's an issue. Hart can't stand Shawn Michaels. Like, in real life. He doesn't respect him. It's a long story. But he basically says, no, no way. I hate Shawn Michaels. I won't lose to him. And Hart was from Canada, so he says, I'm not going through with that, losing to Shawn Michaels in front of my home crowd in Montreal. McMahon says, fine, we'll find another way. So they agree to end this pay-per-view match between Hart and Michaels in some type of disqualification. Neither wrestler wins, and they'll figure out another way for Hart to give up the belt later. So the match starts. The wrestlers go through their moves. It's still early on in the match, and Shawn Michaels puts Bret Hart in a submission hold. And Hart has that contrived grimace. He looks like he's thinking about submitting, about tapping out. But of course we know he's not going to. He's going to fight out of it. Except, here's what happens. The referee signals that Hart submits, that he tapped out. He calls the match. They ring the bell, and he awards the championship belt to Shawn Michaels. There's kind of this stunned silence in the arena. Like, everybody knew something happened that shouldn't have. It's way too early in a headline bout on a pay-per-view for it to end like that. And it was also clear that Hart didn't tap out. So Hart gets up. You can tell he's kind of still processing this. He knows he was duped by McMahon and Michaels. And then he goes nuts. He starts tearing up the ring, the announcer booth. He is absolutely livid. And then he goes to the center of the ring and he writes in the air as big as he can, WCW, again and again for the arena, the television audience to see. WCW. He goes backstage off camera. He confronts Vince McMahon and he punches him in the face. So now wrestling has a problem. Bret Hart breaks the fourth wall in a big way. And the WWE chairman, Vince McMahon, he's got a black eye. Everyone sort of knows the illusion was broken. How will WWE respond? That's when it hits them. This isn't one or the other. 
that's a false choice. It's not own up to it completely or never mention it. They decide, look, we're going to acknowledge what happened, but we're going to do it in a clever way. We're going to weave it into our story. And Vince McMahon, he goes on air a week later, and he says this. There's a time-honored tradition in the wrestling business that when someone is leaving, that they show the right amount of respect to the WWF superstars, in this case, who helped make you that superstar. You show the proper respect to the organization that helped you become who you are today. Some would say, I screwed Bret Hart. Bret Hart would definitely tell you, I screwed him. I look at it from a different standpoint. I look at it from the standpoint of the referee did not screw Bret Hart. Shawn Michaels certainly did not screw Bret Hart. Nor did Vince McMahon screw Bret Hart. I truly believe that Bret Hart screwed Bret Hart. From then on, McMahon becomes more than Vince McMahon, chairman and CEO. He becomes Mr. McMahon, a character in his own right, the evil boss. And these little moments of truth, in the wrestling world they call them shoots, these little unplanned, unscripted occurrences, the WWE decides we're going to keep leaning into them, weave them into our universe so our fans can never quite tell the difference between what's real and what's scripted. Today, the WWE is one of the most popular sports and entertainment entities in America. They have one of the most watched YouTube channels in the world. And they recorded record revenue in 2019. So we had these two instances, JCPenney and World Wrestling Entertainment. And in both cases, the fourth wall was broken. But why did one organization thrive from it, use it to their advantage, and one organization capsized because of it? I think it has to do with something called the illusion of control. The illusion of control is another cognitive bias. It's our tendency to overestimate the ability we have to control events. We often feel a sense of control over things that we actually have very little control over, things that we don't really influence. There's been studies that have shown that people at the craps table, they throw dice harder when they are trying to throw a higher number. Think of a superstitious sports fan that has to wear the same shirt every game day. Or traders on Wall Street who keep a lucky coin on their desk and attribute a successful run to it. Sure, sometimes it's harmless, sometimes it can actually get us into trouble, but largely we like to feel like we're in control of our environments, even when we're not. And in the case of the two stories I told you, I think the key difference isn't that the fourth wall was broken. I think it was how the leaders handled this illusion of control. Look, in the retail environment, we like to think we have control over what we pay. We tell ourselves we're shopping the sales or that outlet malls are offering us overflow product at heavily discounted prices. That's our illusion of control. But when Johnson broke the fourth wall, he made it a binary decision. He accepted that false choice, that it was either completely one way or the other. Either sales tricks and jacked up prices or absolutely no sales ever. And he draws unneeded attention to all the ways that we consumers actually have had no control at JCPenney for decades. He shatters their illusion of control. And I think he sort of accidentally makes them feel small, makes them feel dumb for believing it this whole time. 
and it actually makes them trust him less. They feel like their intelligence is being insulted. But when Vince McMahon broke the fourth wall, he didn't completely shatter it. He didn't say, yeah, Bret Hart had a contract with WCW, we tried to work it out, but sorry, it blew up in our faces, and oh, by the way, this whole thing has been fake for decades. And he didn't just completely overlook it and keep on going on like nothing happened. He made it part of the story. He involved his consumer base in it, and in doing so, he actually strengthened their illusion of control. Now, wrestling fans, there's actually a name for people that enjoy the business behind the WWE that follow both for the scripted drama, but also hunt for those real moments, those kernels of truth. They call them smart marks. Smart. McMahon didn't shatter their illusion of control. He made it even stronger. When you're wearing your lucky shirt at home watching your favorite team play, deep down you know that it doesn't influence whether your team wins or loses. But you don't need someone next to you relentlessly pointing it out all game, shattering your illusion of control. But that's what Ron Johnson did. And he didn't have to. He could have slowly, incrementally changed the pricing strategy, taken his consumers along for the ride, make them feel smart for finding the new transparency, instead of feeling dumb for all of the times they were duped by it in the past. He didn't need to burn the place down. He didn't have to turn the house lights up and say, this is all make-believe, now respect us more for being honest with you. And then, when JCPenney reverts back to a traditional retail pricing strategy? Well, here, listen to this media clip from 2013. It's a whole different story at JCPenney, where our hidden cameras found the troubled retailer marking up prices just to mark them down again. This new price strategy appears to be Penny's latest attempt to lure back shoppers. These are the same traditional pricing strategies they probably used to do. Heck, it's the same thing all retailers do. But once our trust was lost, once that illusion was shattered, we set out for revenge. To call them out on it forever. You can't completely take away our illusion of control. Even if it is, in fact, just an illusion. Once you do, we will never forgive you for it. This is David Giardino. Thanks for listening. If you liked this podcast, subscribing would be a big help. And if that wrestling story interested you, I highly recommend WNYC Radio Lab's podcast entitled The Montreal Screwjob from NPR.